I made to the group as a whole for this invitation, which, frankly, I regard as an honour. And uh, uh, it uh, brings me back to uh, talking about international law with a group, which was something that I've rather missed for some years. So I look forward very much when I finish talking to your questions and, above all, comments and suggestions. Uh, I called this uh, talk uh, Mr. Salomon and Mr. Diallo, uh, Personality and Protection in International Law, as a title, it's as good as any other. Um, Mr. Diallo, I'm sure you're all uh, uh, aware who Mr. Diallo was, uh, but Mr. Salomon, the name of Mr. Salomon may be unfamiliar to any of you who... Uh, are not from a background of the British common law. So perhaps I could explain, first of all, why I mentioned this gentleman. Uh, Mr. Salomon was a leather merchant in the city of London in the 19th century, uh, and he took advantage of the uh, uh, Act of Parliament providing for limited companies to turn his business into a limited company, Salomon and Company. Uh, I think he was probably pretty well off, uh, and the company seems to have gone well for a while, but eventually it went bankrupt, leaving large debts. Uh, and uh, the creditors uh, were not, he, not very satisfied with what was available to them from the company, uh, so they endeavoured to sue Mr. Salomon himself, since he was by that time, uh, in, in essence, the only shareholder. Uh, and at the court of first instance and at the court of appeal, uh, they succeeded, and the, he was, Mr. Salomon was ordered to pay up the debts of the company. But the House of Lords reversed that and said that, no, this was not possible because the company was a separate legal person with its own debts and with its own assets, quite distinct from Mr. Salomon. So that, uh, that, for a common lawyer at least, is the defining case on the separate personality of the company, which, of course, was the downfall of the unfortunate Mr. Diallo. Uh, Mr. Diallo, you will recall, uh, was a national of Equatorial Guinea who set up business in what was then Zaire, and now the... De Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC, uh, and set up two companies, Africom Zaire and Africontainer Zaire, uh, in order to run his business. Uh, many years later, having apparently got across the authorities of the DRC, uh, he was thrown out of the country, uh, leaving behind much of his assets, and leaving behind, of course, his companies, because... Uh, they were companies formed under the law of Zaire, under the law of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, and uh, I expect this is not news to any of you, but just to set the scene, uh, Equatorial Guinea brought proceedings before the International Court of Justice uh, against the DRC uh, in the exercise of diplomatic protection of Mr. Diallo. Uh, and they also endeavoured to claim for the injury done to the companies, Africom Zaire and Africontainer Zaire. Uh, and the court, in the judgment of 2007, 
uh, rejected those claims on the basis that uh, the companies were separate entities, uh, that they were not, did not have the nationality of Equatorial Guinea, they had the nationality of the country under whose laws they were formed, namely the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and that therefore Equatorial Guinea had no use standing uh, to present a claim of diplomatic protection on their behalf. So rather the other side of the medal from Mr. Sullivan. Now, the Diallo case was not, of course, the first appearance in the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice of the idea of a corporation as a separate legal entity with its own nationality and therefore its own protecting state. I need hardly tell this company where that idea comes from, where it began jurisprudentially, of course, the Barcelona attraction case. And in fact, what I want to do this morning is to delve a little into the history of that really quite ancient case uh, and look again at the legal reasoning uh, underlying and surrounding the idea of diplomatic protection of companies on the one hand and individuals on the other. Uh, I have a personal reason for wanting to do this, which I hope you'll forgive, that uh, when I joined the registry of the court, Barcelona Traction was one of the cases, one of the first cases I worked on, and I watched the process of the development of the judgment with great interest from very much from the sidelines, and I was never happy about the result, and I have not been happy about the result <coughs> from that day to this. So I would like to look again at how substantial that case is. Uh, if I may again remind you of what I'm sure you already know, the, briefly the facts of the Barcelona Traction case, that the Barcelona Traction Company, uh, though it operated in Spain, uh, was in fact formed in Canada <coughs> under the laws of Canada, but the, at the time of the events giving rise to the case, the interests, the financial interests in it were overwhelmingly Belgian. And when, by dint of a lot of uh, extremely dubious goings-on, apparently, in Spain, uh, the Barcelona Traction Company was rendered bankrupt, apparently with the complicity of a, a Spanish judge, and in the interests of a, a sinister Spanish financier called Juan Marc, uh, they, it was the Belgians, the Belgian interests, that suffered the most. Uh, the process by which the company was stripped of its assets and the Belgian shareholders holding nothing were very complicated. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have to go into them any more than the court did uh, in uh, 1970. But the Belgian government brought proceedings <coughs> against Spain uh, on the basis of diplomatic protection of their Belgian citizens and were met, of course, <coughs> with a preliminary objection from Spain that uh, the Belgian government had no use standi to present a claim on behalf of a Canadian company, that the injury had been done to a Canadian company and not to Belgian shareholders, uh, and that therefore the case should be dismissed. Uh, the case was for 
the objection was first joined to the merits uh, and then finally dealt with uh, <coughs> excuse me in 1970 and the court upheld that upheld that Spanish contention and dismissed the claim now the grounds I, I want to look a little more closely at the grounds of that decision in a minute uh, but I, I'd like first of all just to recall how the subject developed as it were after Barcelona traction and up to Diallo because there had been some, a couple of significant events in the meantime. In the first place, uh, there was uh, the case of Electronica Sicula, which was the United States against Italy, which you may remember, but you, you may not have thought of it as a case involving uh, the protection of corporate interests as against the protection of shareholder interests, because that's not a, a matter that is emphasised in the proceedings. Because, in fact, the claim was made by the American financial interests in, in a, an Italian company, so that, at first sight, one might have thought, why not apply the Barcelona traction uh, jurisprudence and reject the claim on the basis that the injury was done to an Italian company by the Italian authorities and therefore no your standing for the United States. Uh, in fact, the judgment seems to slide <coughs> right past that issue. It never, never really mentions it. Though it does turn up in a couple of the separate opinions. Uh, and the reason that's generally uh, attributed to the judgment for taking this line is that the case was based on a treaty of friendship between the United States and Italy and not on the basis of an acceptance of jurisdiction under, for example, Article 36 or, and customary law, and that therefore, since a treaty was being applied, uh, the Barcelona attraction jurisprudence would not be applicable. But as I say, the case itself doesn't answer that question, so we don't know. You could at the time of Electronica Sicula, have said that this is a, a quiet reversal by the ICJ of its Barcelona traction jurisprudence. Uh, if you had said that, of course, you would have been proved drastically wrong when the Diallo case came. Uh, so that particular avenue needn't be explored further. <coughs> uh, the other significant event uh, was the study by the International Law Commission of diplomatic protection, uh, which did not neglect the question of diplomatic protection of corporations. Uh, Professor Dugard wrote a very long and good report on the subject, and eventually Articles 9 to 11 of the uh, articles prepared by the International Law Commission uh, dealt with the question of nationality of, of a corporation and protection of a corporation. Uh, and even before we, we go back to look at Barcelona attraction, we may perhaps notice uh, that the ILC did make a couple of tentative pushes in the direction of tempering the Barcelona attraction jurisprudence. Uh, in the first place, uh, it recognised that the state of nationality of a corporation might not be necessarily 
the state under whose legislation it was incorporated. Uh, thus, Barcelona Traction was incorporated in Canada. It was taken for granted at the time that that meant Canada was its national state. Canada could protect Barcelona Traction. But Article 9 of the, of the ILC uh, draft articles uh, says that, first of all, for the purpose of diplomatic protection of a corporation, state of nationality means the state under whose law the corporation was incorporated. So far, so simple. However, when the corporation is controlled by nationals of another state or states and has no substantial business in the state of incorporation, which was the case of Barcelona Traction, no activity in Canada, and the seat of management and the financial control of the corporation are both located in another state, that state shall be regarded as a state of nationality. So if that had been the law, if that had been the established law at the time of Barcelona Attraction, Belgium could have made a pretty good case for saying we are the state of nationality of Barcelona Attraction, although it's a Canadian company, because we fulfil those conditions. So that was already a little gesture, a little uh, indication of a flow of thought away from the rigidity, if I can call it that, of... Uh, the Barcelona Attraction Doctrine. <coughs> the other provision which I want to draw attention to, and um, which we may have to consider a little more deeply, uh, is the exception provided in Article 11 of the ILC draft. Well, there are two exceptions. Uh, the state of nationality of, a share, of shareholders in a corporation shall not be entitled to exercise diplomatic protection in respect of such shareholders in the case of an injury to the corporation unless the corporation has ceased to exist. Uh, that's uh, one possibility, but less interesting. But the other is this. The corporation had, at the date of injury, the nationality of the state alleged to be responsible for causing the injury, and incorporation in that state was required by it as a precondition for doing business there. Uh, that uh, was uh, invoked by Mr. Diallo, though it didn't get him anywhere for reasons we'll see in a moment. Uh, but that is already a qualification of the rigidity of the Barcelona attraction rule. Uh, I, I don't want to mislead here, though. It was probably a qualification or exception that existed even at the time of Barcelona Attraction. It is mentioned, uh, for example, by Judge Jessup in, in his opinion in the case. Uh, but for convenience, I'm treating it as though the ILC had invented it. I just would, ought to qualify that by saying that they didn't just invent it. But are those ILC provisions already customary law or not. I think we'll come back to that in a moment. Now I'd like to turn to Barcelona Attraction itself uh, and just follow briefly through the line of argument that led the courts to such a, a decisive view that the national state of the shareholders could not exercise diplomatic protection, even though there was no doubt that they had suffered injury. The court begins, paragraph 33, where the classic statement 
of diplomatic protection. When a state admits into its territory foreign investments or foreign nationals, whether natural or juristic persons, it is bound to extend to them the protection of the law and assumes obligations concerning the treatment to be afforded them. Right, so we've got, <coughs> what we've got is obligation owed by the eventual respondent state to the nationals of the other state. And then the court goes on, quoting from the reparation for injuries case, that a first requirement for such a claim is that the defendant state has broken an obligation towards the national state in respect of its nationals. I draw attention to that phrase because it's, it was uh, included in a decision before Barcelona Tracks. It was included in the reparation for injuries case, so it isn't designed to fit the Barcelona Traction case. But you notice that it's, it's, it's very in, unspecific. It doesn't say the defendant state has broken an obligation towards the nationals of the other state. It says an obligation towards the national state in respect of its nationals, which is much more flexible, surely. And then the court then goes on. In the present case, it is therefore essential to establish whether the losses allegedly suffered by the shareholders were the consequence of a violation of obligations of which they were the beneficiaries. In other words, has the right of Belgium been violated on account of its nationals having suffered infringement of their rights as shareholders in a company not of Belgian nationality? You notice there there's a little bit of a shift of, of uh, meaning. Uh, is it the question of uh, an obligation to the shareholders, to the nationals, or is it an obligation to the state in respect of the nationals? The latter gives one a bit more leeway. So having got so far, I'm now going to refer to the authentic text, but don't worry, I'm not going to quote the whole judgment or we'll be here till this evening. Um, <coughs> The court says responsibility is the necessary corollary of a right. Responsibility is a necessary corollary of a right. So in other words, when you have a right, you have a, a responsibility or obligation. Where you have responsibility, it's, that, that already is more limited than this idea of in respect of. Then comes a very important passage. Let me, let's just, just sit back a minute and say there is a right of the applicant state as against the respondent state. But there's also another right of some sort floating around which is, belongs to or is attached to or is in respect of the national. Where does that right come <coughs> from? Which legal system does it belong to? Does it belong to public international law? Does it belong to... Spanish law in this case? Does it belong to Canadian law in this case? Where does it come from? The court said, in this field, international law is called upon to recognise institutions of municipal law. This does not necessarily imply drawing any analogy between its own institutions and those of municipal law, nor does it amount to making rules of international law dependent upon categories of municipal law. 
All it means is that international law has had to recognize the corporate entity as an institution created by states in a domain essentially within their domestic jurisdiction. This means that whenever legal issues arise concerning the right of states with regard to the treatment of companies and shareholders, as to which rights international law has not established its own rule, it has to refer to the relevant rules of municipal law. Well, that seems fairly straightforward and sensible, doesn't it? But then you've got at the end the relevant rules of municipal law. <coughs> that still leaves us floating. Which municipal law? There were, uh, they could say there are at least two involved, perhaps even three. Municipal law determines the legal situation not only of limited liability companies, but also those persons who hold shares in them. The concept and structure of the company are founded on and determined by a firm distinction between the separate entity of the company and that of the shareholder. So the court is saying we are going to borrow from municipal law the idea that the corporation is a person in its own right. Um, that still leaves open, doesn't it, the question, which municipal law? And then this is the, I'm sorry, just trying to find the, which paragraph I wanted to refer to here. Move it, the court has moved on a bit here, but it comes back to this same idea. The court must start from the fact that the present case essentially involves factors derived from municipal law, the distinction and the community between the company and the shareholder. If the court were to decide the case in disregard of the relevant institutions of municipal law, it would, without justification, invite serious legal difficulties. It would lose touch with reality for there are no corresponding institutions of international law which the court could resort. Well, that, that's a very striking statement. It's, it's, they're saying that we've got to go to municipal law because companies don't exist in public international law. It's a, a perfectly reasonable and sensible approach. But when they go on, the court never actually says which municipal law. On the contrary, what it does is it seems to declare that there is a, something called municipal law of corporations which floats in general, as it were, over the various specific systems of municipal law. There's a very revealing point. Um, <coughs> I forget the paragraph reference, but I can recall it from memory. Uh, there's a very revealing point where the judgment describes the Barcelona Instruction Company as a société à responsabilité limitée. This is in the French text of the judgment, of course, but the French text is the authentic text, to which the short answer is that that's complete nonsense. Barcelona Attraction wasn't a société à responsabilité limitée. It was a company incorporated by shares. And the court is, and seems to be arguing that all companies are one company, that all companies are the same company, that there is a concept of company to which the court can refer. Oh, excuse me. 
rather than looking to see what actually Canadian law or Spanish law might have to say on the subject. I, I myself feel... No, I won't put it that way. I invite you to reflect on that and, and consider whether you think that is sound reasoning and also to reflect on why the court <coughs> might, have, might have taken that approach. What one could, I think, have uh, expected from the court was a, a choice of law rule, a conflict law, a, a conflict law rule, a choice of law rule saying when there is a claim involving a corporation of municipal law, international law, public international law, refers to the state of incorporation of the company. That would be a perfectly workable rule, wouldn't it? So why this curious idea that there is a general municipal law? I see I'm talking too much and I'm not going to be able to touch on some other points which I really would uh, like to deal with. So I'm going to move on to... Uh, there's quite a lot more that could be said, I think, on this, this particular subject. You can see I've got you know, reams and reams of notes. Uh, one argument that I think should, I should mention before moving on is um, does this mean that international law uh, has to respect municipal law? Judge Grove was very cross about this. He said the judgment is making international law subject to municipal law. Um, uh, and in a sense, there's, there's some truth in that, isn't there? Uh, but uh, as was pointed out by Rapporteur Dugard, that international law doesn't always respect municipal law. Go, go back to this question of rights and responsibilities that we were talking about. If they are under the law of the respondent state, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily going to be respected by an international tribunal, does it? Otherwise, uh, you could confiscate property and simply pass a municipal law saying that that was perfectly legitimate. That would be no defence to an international claim, so that it is possible for international law to override municipal law. But is it, I only ask the question, but is it only possible... <coughs> if the municipal law to be overridden is the municipal law of the respondent state. That's in my example of the, of the confiscation. And could that conceivably a reason, be a reason why the court wanted to keep its municipal law rather vague? Now, the other, looking at my watch, the other particular point I wanted to, to put before you for I hope, hope that we shall have some discussion on it, and um, I'll try and answer questions, but I hope we shall see a bit of dialogue as well. Um, this was a point also raised by Rapporteur Dugard. What was the source of law to which the court was referring, or which court was basing itself in adopting this restrictive approach in the Barcelona Traction Judgment? Let's get customary law out of the way straight away. Uh, the court never mentions that it's applying customary law. Uh, it appears to be implying that there wasn't any. Uh, but in fact, uh, it was pointed out after the judgment in a very important article in the American Journal that in fact there was 
customary practice in existence before Weizmann attraction in the form of what are called lump sum agreements for settlement, which suggested that the shareholders could be protected by their national state and that the barrier, that the separation, the block formed by the corporation didn't necessarily leave them uh, unprotected. But anyway, the, the court doesn't seem to say that it is applying customary law. Uh, we may note, just jumping ahead a moment, that in Diallo, the court considered whether there was a limited rule of protection uh, with reference to the Article 11 point that we've just seen uh, about the, uh, <coughs> where the respondent state is also the state of nationality of the company. The court referred to that as the question whether customary international law contains a more limited rule of protection. It suggests that for Diallo's judges, they thought that the Barcelona attraction judges had been applying customary law. But at the very best, there was no practice. Is it possible for a court uh, to just create a rule like this out of thin air? <coughs> of course, the fact that a customary rule doesn't cover every possible case uh, doesn't mean that the ICJ or any other international tribunal cannot be creative and fill in the gaps, as it were. But is this a gap filling? It looks much more like a bit of pickaxe work knocking some of the rule away. Um, is this legitimate? I just raised the question. Or could it conceivably be a general principle of law, uh, also possible under the statute, uh, to my knowledge, the court has never specifically relied on that provision of the statute of the general principles of law, though I stand to be corrected if anyone can think of it. Uh, they were very, the judges were very insistent on the fact that the these municipal law co corporation uh, shareholder division was a general principle. It's not really a principle of international law, is it? Or is it? It, it floats un, uneasily between international law and the law chosen by the conflicts rule, the non-existent conflicts rule, which in this case leads us not to this, that, or that system, but a sort of overall overarching system. I quoted just now, uh, if the court were to decide the case in disregard of the relevant institutions of municipal law, it would, without justification, invite serious little legal difficulties. It would lose touch with reality, for there are no corresponding institutions of international law to which the court resort, could resort. Uh, well, it's very odd to say that and simultaneously create a, a corresponding institution of international law, which the court is saying that public international law recognises for this purpose a sort of ideal company in the platonic sense of an ideal idea that the, uh, that, uh, the, the something which englobes all the corporateness of all the various municipal systems into one ideal corporation and what else is that if it isn't a corresponding <coughs> institution of international law. Another doubt that's uh, no more than I express it. 
There was another field covered in the judgment and in the opinions in the Barcelona Traction case, uh, which we may put in terms of sources, and that is equity. Of course, equity isn't in the ICJ statute, uh, and exactly to what extent it can be relied on by a court is uh, distinctly unclear. Uh, but let's just look again at what actually happened to the Belgian shareholders and what happened to poor Mr Diallo. Uh, the Belgian shareholders, I've no doubt, they were the most awful rapacious financiers and in fact there was suggestions of some very curious goings on during the Second World War uh, which um, fortunately the court never had to examine. But nonetheless... They were the owners of very substantial assets uh, which were taken away from them uh, by uh, Spanish interests. Uh, they got no address in Spain and their government got no address for them <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, at the international level. In that connection, I'd like to... I mentioned a point which, frankly, I, I let slide earlier, but I shouldn't have done. The concept of the corporation, the commercial corporation, the company, as a legal entity of its own, works very well in municipal law, does it not? In fact, it's probably somewhat abused in the field of tax and so forth, but it, it works practically. And now, why does it work? Because the interests behind the company control the company and therefore the company has a will of its own which is the will of the shareholders. If the company is injured, the shareholders can decide to go to law about it. Now what happens when you transfer that to the diplomatic protection field? It breaks down, doesn't it? Uh, because the shareholders in Barcelona Attraction, setting aside the, the effects of the bankruptcy for the moment, the shareholders in Barcelona Traction could say to the company, take action, do something, get the money back so that we can share it. Uh, and the Barcelona Traction company could go to the Canadian government and say, please, please, could we have some diplomatic protection here? But of course, as we know, Canada did not exercise protection, and the reason was clear, what's, what's in it for them? So that the, the whole structure the whole relationship of shareholder and company at the municipal law level breaks down at the diplomatic protection level, which may be another reason why the, the court kept itself very firmly on the levels of the ideal company. <coughs> One argument that was uh, mentioned in the Diallo case uh, was that um, it wasn't presented in this form, but this, I think, is, is what lies behind it, uh, that, yes, okay, the Barcelona Attraction Doctrine causes injustice in its application. Uh, but that's all right, because really nobody bothers with the diplomatic protection of investors and companies. Now we all go to ICSID instead, uh, and that therefore... Uh, since uh, ICSID has taken over, the whole matter is really not, it's not necessary to improve the situation. Uh, is there anything in that? 
does the fact that a, a new treaty system to reach a, a possible result necessarily renders the customary law, because we have to assume that we have <coughs> customary law, renders the customary law remedies uh, no longer relevant. And uh, I'm absolutely no specialist at all in the field of exit and investment disputes. Probably someone here is. But as I understand it, there are complications uh, if, for example, in a given company, some investors come from states which have accepted exit jurisdiction and others don't. That sort of complication. Finally, uh, I've already talked about the question of sources, and this, I think, is relevant to the question uh, of development of the law. If, if the Barcelona attraction result is inequitable, uh, and assuming that it can't be corrected judicially in the application of equity, though, as I say, some judges in Barcelona attraction would have taken that view, Jessup in particular, if that is so... Uh, again, we have a lack of parallel between the two legal systems. As I said, the system in municipal law of corporation, shareholder, their interrelations, their remedies <coughs> against each other or against others, all fits together and works very satisfactorily. Now, if it doesn't work on the international level, how do you change it? It's very difficult to change international law. By cu custom, well, we don't really, fortunately, seem to get enough practice, and also there ICSID does matter, because of course the, if ICSID is appealed to as an alternative, then there's very little possibility of practice in straight diplomatic protection. Uh, <coughs> and the legislature of course can intervene at the municipal level. If something seems to be wrong, then if, if companies are being used for flagrant tax abuse, for example, they can be dealt with. Nothing possible on the international level best you can get is the uh, rather tentative proposals of the International Law Commission. So I, I'm told that, it, that it's welcome <coughs> if uh, the speaker can leave you about half an hour for discussion. So I'll just close by referring once again to our two heroes, Mr. Salomon and Mr. Diallo. Uh, in the case of Salomon, you could have said there, or the creditors certainly could have said, that this is a very unfair and unjust judgment. But in fact, that was because that was the way the system was designed to work. Limited liability company means what it says. If you invest in a limited liability company, then the liability is limited and therefore your rights are possibly limited. So uh, the equities of the worry were defeated by the statute which said you can form a company with limited liability and that is a separate body. Then poor Mr. Diallo, of course, it was the other way around. The equities were all on his side, surely, all on the side of Equatorial Guinea on his behalf, uh, and he was the possibility of remedy was frustrated by adopting a, a very rigid international law rule and also applying a very rigid concept of the corporate shareholder relationship, which doesn't appear, as I say, to correspond precisely to any specific 
municipal system. I think that is all I really have to say for the moment. And I thank you very much for your attention and look forward to what's going to be said from the floor. <laughs>